0: the iconic spire of Notre Dame Cathedral that has stood for centuries collapsed.
1: That kind of day. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Let me choke us to the
0: right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you I am Yes, I'm stuck in the
1: middle From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest in China Lake, California also in California, on uh, in Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, in Cottage Grove, on KSO, in Eugene, on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii, on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, WPRR. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD. In Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for you. On the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, As we go to air, as you have probably heard, the extraordinary, still breaking news of the historic, iconic, 850-year-old Notre Dame Cathedral in the heart of uh, both literally and spiritually, I think, uh, in the heart of Paris. Uh, is now engulfed in flames, burning. Uh, much of it has already burnt to the ground in this catastrophic fire that engulfed the upper reaches of Paris's soaring cathedral as it was undergoing renovations on Monday, threatening one of the greatest architectural treasures of the Western world as tourists and Parisians looked on aghast from the streets below. Uh, France's interior ministry said firefighters May not be able to save the structure, but Desi Doyen, I think we got word just uh, minutes ago that the iconic towers, will they will be able to save them, as we understand it? Yes, so the
0: latest we have is the Paris chief of police said the structure of the cathedral has been saved and the catastrophic fire is cooling and has been stopped from spreading to the northern belfry. Those are the two rectangular uh, bell towers Mm -hmm. that are sort of in the front. Between them is the iconic rose stained glass window that stood there for hundreds of years and it's unclear if the rose, uh, the stained glass window the rose window yeah. has been saved or not but at least the bell towers the northern bell tower has been saved and so they think that uh, the wooden frame of the cathedral is is probably completely destroyed I mean as darkness fell these were mm-hmm. amazing photos of the interior of the cathedral just lit by flame yeah. and the entire roof of the structure appears to be, have been destroyed based on uh, drone flights over it so um, you know about two thirds of wow. the cathedral is destroyed um, we'll see what happens if they were able to save any of the priceless artifacts and artwork and uh, uh, other, mm-hmm. you know, Christian uh, relics that were stored there have been saved. They were trying to evacuate those uh, those items as well. So we we shall see.
1: Eight hundred years, one uh, his French historian said that the cathedral has been watching over Paris. Uh, Four hundred firefighters were battling the blaze as a national emergency today. So thank you, Desi Doyne. We will keep our eyes on that uh, developing story. Beyond that... Back here at home, we have a lot to get to, including a guest coming up, uh, hopefully in a little bit here. Uh, It it seems as many of our own institutions also seem to be burning to the ground of late, even if not literally, as they are in Paris, but perhaps more metaphorically. Uh, If you had uh, plans for this Thursday, you may wish to reschedule them at this point and or make sure that your reading glass uh, prescription is up to date. Uh, or you may wish to make plans to do something else entirely on on Thursday. I don't know to avoid the inferno that will engulf DC um, and their media, the news media, justifiably uh, in this case, and much of the nation, one way or another. As the Justice Department has announced uh, that they are anticipating a Thursday morning release of the public version of the report submitted by Special Counsel Robert Mueller. DOJ spokesperson Kerry Kupek confirmed the timeline uh, that was reported earlier today and uh, expects release of that report at some point on Thursday. It will be made available to pub- to the public and Congress at the same time. This is the 400-page report that Robert Mueller previously submitted to t- Donald Trump's Attorney General, William Barr, who summarized it accurately or not, we don't know, in four pages. Um Bill Barr has uh, already been under much scrutiny for his uh, plans to withhold certain materials in the report itself to redact it from both Congress and the public, including grand jury materials, classified information um Information about quote peripheral third-party individuals that could damage their reputations. Who those third-party peripheral individuals are? Well, I guess that's a decision that will be made by the attorney general. House Democrats have already made formal requests to see the entire report, and they, ha- as has been the case in uh, with previous reports under Bill Clinton, under Richard Nixon, they have. Uh, floated, taking the Department of Justice to court over full disclosure of its contents and the underlying evidence as well. That's coming up later uh, later this week. Now, you know, uh, in news of other institutions seemingly burning to the ground here in the U.S. today, uh, such as what used to be known as the rule of law, for example, your taxes may be due today. But the ever-tremendously generous Democrats in the U.S. House Ways and uh, Means Committee have kindly extended the deadline for the IRS commissioner and apparently the Treasury Secretary, uh, which for some reason inappropriately controls the IRS commissioner, uh, and the White House, which unlawfully controls both of them, seemingly on this matter, they have been given an extension until April 23rd, to follow the rule of law and turn over to Congress six years of Donald Trump's tax returns as required by U.S. federal law. For those folks who still believe in such quaint things, um, I'd hope to get uh, to more of that later, but I don't know if we will today. Either way, uh, we'll see what we have time for in a bit. Uh, As I note, I've. Also got a guest coming up momentarily, and I wouldn't mind opening up the phones if there's time left over. Our number will be, if you wish to jot it down, 818-985-5735. That is 818-985-KPFK, if I can get to that today. But quickly, in what I see as uh, related news to our... uh, Well, to all of this, to the sudden collapse of long, well-respected institutions in this country, you may recall that last week a 55-year-old man from upstate New York was charged with threatening to kill Minnesota Congresswoman Elon Omar, the man from... Addison, New York, allegedly made uh, this uh, threat to her during a call to the Democrats' office in Washington, D.C. on March 21. According to the court filing against this man, um, Said uh, he, he apparently said to Omar's staffer, who answered the phone, quote, do you work for the Muslim Brotherhood? Why are you working for her? She's a effing terrorist. I'll put a bullet in her effing skull. Yeah, that's a pretty serious threat, I would say, uh, to anyone, much less a U.S. uh, Congress member. When authorities went to the man's house, he seemed to know why the FBI wanted to speak to him. He stated that he was a patriot, that he loves the president, and that he hates radical Muslims in our government. That, according to the affidavit filed in court, he also said that Omar supported Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood and that her election to Congress was illegitimate. Well, I wonder where he could have gotten those ideas. They don't mention it here, but I suspect the man was a Fox News fan. Uh, The man initially told authorities that he had told Omar's staffer that, quote, if our forefathers were still alive, they'd put a bullet in her head. He denied that he called her a terrorist and that he threatened to kill her. I'm not sure that version of the story, however, may have served him any better, to be frank. But then after he was warned that it was a crime, because apparently he didn't know, because apparently he's a Fox News viewer, uh, that it's a crime to lie to an FBI agent. They may not mention that much on Fox for some reason. After he was told that, he acknowledged that he may have said something to that effect. Uh, that uh, he, yeah, was going to uh, threaten to put a bullet in her head. A shotgun and 22 caliber weapon was found in his house, uh, even though he first tried to claim that the firearms belonged to his girlfriend, then he later admitted they were his. I guess once he was reminded again that lying to the FBI is unlawful, the New York chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations, or CARE, characterized that, as, uh, this, that incident a few weeks ago as yet another example of how President Donald Trump's rhetoric has emboldened bigots. CARE, New York's executive director, said the political environment led by an Islamophobe in the White House has normalized hate speech and emboldened bigots in their actions. The rising threat of Islamophobia and white supremacy... Uh, He said, must be taken seriously. We are thankful that law enforcement tracked this individual down before he could act on his hatred for Muslims. That event happened, uh, that arrest last week, uh, as authorities um, finally also arrested a man that they say was behind the burning of three African-American churches in Louisiana over the past several weeks. The suspect, in a string of fires that destroyed three black churches, in rural Louisiana, is the white son of a sheriff's deputy. The 21-year-old man named Holden Matthews was jailed without bail on arson charges in connection with the Blazes in and around uh, the city of Opelousa, uh, a city of 16,000 where the flame-gutted remains of the uh, three churches evoked memories of civil rights-era violence, Louisiana's fire marshal said there was no indication that anyone else was involved and the danger to the churches in the area was over once this man was apprehended. Matthews was arrested on three counts of arson of a religious building, a conviction could bring up to 15 years in prison on each count. The fires happened over a 10-day period after the first blaze torched the St. Mary Baptist Church on March 26. Uh, days later, the Greater Union Baptist Church and Mount Pleasant Baptist Church uh, were all engulfed in flames. Matthews will remain in jail after a judge on Monday uh, denied him bond as state prosecutors added new charges declaring the arsons a hate crime, according to the Associated Press. The man entered his not guilty plea via video conference. From jail, the judge set a September trial date. And in denying bail, State District Judge James Doherty sided with law enforcement officials who said they worried Matthews would try to flee the area or set more fires. Federal officials also are are said to be considering additional federal hate crime and arson charges against Matthews. Officials say the evidence they have against him was uh, uh, unequivocal. But, of course, those are just two of many recent crimes of late against various minorities in the U.S., with many of the alleged perpetrators aligning with white supremacists and other supporters of President Donald J. Trump. And in that atmosphere, over this past weekend, that same Donald J. Trump... A metaphorical arsonist, if you will, if not an actual one, Donald Trump tweeted out a video to his millions of followers, even after all of that has gone on that I, I just described. And that's really just only a part of it. But even after that, he tweeted out a video to his millions of followers with an out of context comment from freshman Congresswoman Elon Omar, who had recently been threatened with a bullet through her effing skull. Uh, This comment uh, in this video was repeatedly played over and over again, never with the full context of the comment and interspersed each time with news reports and video of the World Trade Center being attacked and collapsing to the ground on 9-11. In a tweet, this was a tweet from the president of the United States, suggesting that one of the two uh, of, of the first female uh, Congress members uh, of the Muslim faith was somehow involved in this incident, in, in, involved somehow in 9/11. He included his own thoughts in that tweet, typing in all caps: "We will never forget." Congressman Omar today says she has faced increased death threats since Trump spread around that video that purports to show her being dismissive of the 2001 terrorist attack. She said this is endangering lives. She accused Trump of fomenting right wing extremism and said it has to stop. Her statement late Sunday followed an announcement by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that she has taken steps to ensure the safety of the Minnesota Democrat and the speaker's call for Trump to take down that video. Soon after Pelosi's statement, the video uh, was only partially taken down in that it disappeared as a pinned tweet at the top of Trump's Twitter feed. Yes, he had actually pinned that tweet up to the top so no matter what it else, no matter what else appeared on his feed, anyone who checked out his uh, his Twitter feed would see that one first. So he they did unpin it today, but it was not deleted. It's still on the first page of his Twitter feed as we go to air. And Trump further escalated that standoff Monday morning, tweeting that quote: "Before Nancy, who has lost all control of Congress and is getting nothing done, decides to defend her leader, Rep. Omar." She should look at the anti-Semitic, anti-Israel and ungrateful U.S. hate statements Omar has made. That's coming from Donald Trump calling uh, Congressman Omar Nancy Pelosi's leader, accusing her of anti-Semitic, anti-Israel and ungrateful hate statements against the U.S. Now, Omar uh, has made no such statements, none. And I want to say that loudly and clearly as a Jewish person myself. No, I am not offended by anything that Elon Omar has said. The most offensive and dangerous statements in this entire story have come repeatedly from the president of the United States who has faced no punishment for having done so. No punishment for his vitriolic statements that have sent uh, people out uh, on, on hunts of Democrats, Muslims, uh, African-Americans. Take your pick. Jews, I should add. Remember, uh, the, the, the massacre at the uh, Jewish synagogue in uh, Pittsburgh was a huge Donald Trump fan as well. Pelosi was among several Democrats who had criticized Trump over the tweet, with some accusing him of trying to incite violence against the Muslim lawmaker. Well, I should say so. Omar said uh, that since that tweet uh, uh, of, of Donald Trump's on Friday night, she has received many threats on her life that referred or replied to the posted video. She said violent crimes and other acts of hate by right wing extremists and white nationalists are on the rise in this country. And around the world, she said, we can no longer ignore that they are being encouraged by the occupant of the highest office in the land. She added, we are all Americans. Pelosi, uh, in her statement that she issued while traveling in London today, saying that uh, she had spoken with congressional authorities to assure that Capitol Police are now conducting a, a security assessment to safeguard Congresswoman Omar, her family and her staff, Pelosi said officials will continue to monitor and assess threats against Omar. Called on, she called on Trump to discourage such behavior, noting that the president's words weigh a ton and his hateful and inflammatory rhetoric creates real danger. The video in Trump's tweet included a snippet from uh, a recent speech that Omar gave to the Council on American Islamic Relations in which she described the September 11. Uh, attacks, uh, terrorist attacks, on the World Trade Center. And since AP, while pointing out that the comments from Omar that Trump's video used over and over again were taken out of context, the words that were used over and over again were, quote, some people did something. That's what Omar said. Uh, They were taken out of uh, out of uh, out of context. And AP failed to offer the actual context in their coverage of all of this. At least today. Specifically, Omar said during her remarks, quote, far too long. We Muslims have lived with the discomfort of being a second class citizen. And frankly, I'm tired of it. And every single Muslim in this country should be tired of it. CARE was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. Harmless enough, but Fox News and the right and Donald Trump have been stripping it out of context to spin Omar's phrase, some people did something, as if she was dismissing or minimizing the significance of 9-11 for both the victims and the country. Which, as Zach Bouchamp uh, notes at at, uh, Vox.com, is not remotely accurate if you watch the full video in which, for example, at the end, she speaks movingly about how America's national values motivated her family to immigrate to the U.S., From Somalia, when she was a child, she's now the first Somali-American to serve in Congress. And she uh, noted at the end of that speech, quote, As an American member of Congress, I have to make sure I live up to the ideals of fighting for liberty and justice. Those are very much rooted in the reason why my family came here, she said. But to Trump, taking her words out of context, implying that she is a terrorist, that's just another day and another way to try and help enrage his brain poisoned base to help him win re-election next year. That's all that's about. In response, newly declared and currently surging Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and an Afghan uh, war Afghanistan war vet himself offered a tweet thread in which he noted that after 9-11, we all said we were changed, that we were stronger and more united. That's what Never Forget was about. Now a president uses that dark day to incite his base against a member of Congress as if for sport, as if we learned nothing that day about the workings of hate. That day... Judge writes, some people did this. They killed thousands of Americans in order to try to make us smaller, more divided and less free, to weaken us by distancing us from our own values through fear and anger. This is the function of terrorism, he wrote. I served overseas at risk to my life in the struggle against terrorism, but it can only be fully defeated if we have leaders at home who diffuse its capacity to sow hate, hate against Islam or against any number of, quote, others. The president today made America smaller writes Buddha judge it is not enough to condemn him we must model something better the threats against the life of elon omar make clear what is at stake if we fail to do this And to beat back hate in all of its forms. That was Pete Buttigieg over the weekend on Twitter. Trump's tweet was uh, posted atop Trump's Twitter, as I said, atop of his feed for much of Sunday. It had more than nine million views and remained lower in his feed after Pelosi requested the video be pulled entirely. Congressman Jerry Nadler, New York Democrat who represents Manhattan's final, uh, I'm sorry, financial uh, district, which was targeted on 9-11, said he had no issues with Omar's characterization of the attack. And just a reminder that on the day of the attack, within an hour or so of the collapse of the towers, Donald Trump was on television, noting that he now owned what had been the second tallest building in downtown Manhattan until the collapse of the World Trade Center, but that his building that he owned was now the tallest in lower Manhattan. That's what he was doing in the hour after the collapse of the World Trade Center. Also, it should be noted that Donald Trump's companies would eventually take some $150 million in federal grant money for recovery meant to help small businesses recover from the attack. That's who is out there uh, essentially uh, increasing the hate against Elon Omar for an attack that she had absolutely nothing to do with, but you sure wouldn't notice if you looked at Donald Trump's uh, Twitter feed. All right, before we get to a, uh, to a quick break here and to my guest today, who, who may uh, make me feel better somehow... Because uh, some hope is in order, uh, and since I mentioned Pete Buttigieg, uh, the 37-year-old, married, openly gay mayor of South Bend, uh, he made his intentions to seek the Democratic national uh, the, the, to seek the Democratic nomination for president of the United States uh, official on Sunday with remarks in his hometown inside a restored. Mixed use technology center that was built inside what had once been a hulking, dilapidated factory uh, like so many that loomed over that city of South Bend and many others like it uh, after they were shut down in recent decades while manufacturing moved out. out of many once thriving industrial towns in the Midwest. uh, Here are just a few of the remarks from Mayor Pete, as they call him back home, as he claimed the mantle of a young generation ready to reshape the country in his official announcement for president of the United States to a raucous overflow crowd in Indiana.
2: More people are moving into South Bend than we've seen in a generation. Thousands of new jobs have been added in our area. Billions in investment. Now, there's a long way for us to go. But we have changed our trajectory and shown a path forward for communities like ours. And that's why I'm here today, to tell a different story than Make America Great Again. Because there's a myth being sold to industrial and rural communities, the myth that we can stop the clock and turn it back. It comes from people who think the only way to speak to communities like ours is through resentment and nostalgia. They're selling an impossible promise of returning to a bygone era that was never as great as advertised to begin with. The problem is that they're telling us to look for greatness in all the wrong places. Because if there is one thing that the city of South Bend has shown, it's that there is no such thing as an honest politics that revolves around the word again. So that's why I'm here today. My name is Pete Buttigieg. They call me Mayor Pete. I'm a proud son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for president of the United States. I recognize the audacity of doing this as a Midwestern millennial mayor. More than a little bold, at age 37, to seek the highest office in the land. But we live in a moment that compels us each to act. The forces changing our country today are tectonic. Forces that help to explain what made this current presidency even possible. That's why this time it's not just about winning an election. It's about winning an era. The principles that will guide my campaign for president are simple enough to fit on a bumper sticker. Freedom, security, and democracy. And take it from Chastin and me, you're not free if a county clerk gets to tell you who you ought to marry because of their idea of their political beliefs. We are here to say that there is a lot more to safety and security than putting up a wall from sea to shining sea. Sometimes the dark moment brings out the best in us helps us find what is good in us. Dare I say, what is great in us. So with hope in our hearts and with fire in our bellies, let's get to work and let's make history. Thank you.
1: That was South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg announcing his run for the Democratic nomination for president on Sunday. Freedom, security, and democracy. There's some ideas I could get behind. Buttigieg would be the first openly gay nominee of a major presidential party. He married his husband, Chaston, last year. He would be the first mayor to go directly to the White House. And he would be the youngest person to become president, turning uh, 39 the day before the next Inauguration on January 20, 2021. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was 42 when he took office. JFK was 43. Bill Clinton was 46, but Buttigieg would be 39. Uh, he says the best way for Democrats to defeat Trump may be to nominate a mayor experienced in helping to revive a Midwestern city once described as, quote, dying, rather than a politician who has spent years, quote, marinating in Washington. The uh, South Bend's fire marshal said the rally drew 4,500 people inside and 1,500 outside, despite the rainy weather there on Sunday. So uh, Buttigieg has, has vaulted uh, to the front of the pack, really, coming in uh, right now, pulling uh, something like a third behind uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, who has yet to announce officially himself. Uh, Also today, Republican Bill Weld, former Massachusetts governor, uh, has announced he will run for president for the uh, Republican nomination against Donald Trump. He's the first Republican to do so. Uh, In any event, I want to take a quick break here and uh, come back to pick up a bit on uh, Buttigieg's comments here that we, quote, we live in a moment that compels each to act. In order to help counter what he described as the tectonic forces that made a dark, lawless, hateful presidency like Donald Trump's even possible in the first place. When, as Mayor Pete said, what will happen in 2020 is, quote, not just about winning an election, but about winning an era. And for that, it's going to take each of us, yes, to act, as he said, and just voting. May not be enough. Let's take a quick break here and we will come back with Josh Douglas, author of the new book, Vote for Us, how to take back our elections and change the future of voting. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. and thanks.
0: I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland,
1: Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. Yes, we are. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Hey, Desi Doyen, uh, yes. old riddle, an old riddle that I used to love. It was my favorite riddle as a kid. Okay. I love this one. You ready? Uh, what did Tennessee
0: I don't know, but that sounds that doesn't you don't make even sense. know what that
1: means. No. What did Tennessee? Uh, the same thing, Arkansas. Oh, okay. that made great sense <laughs> to me as a kid. I Alrighty. thought it was hilarious. Good kid and, joke. and it actually makes even more sense today with what's going on in the news. Uh, so let me start in Tennessee by way of introducing my guests momentarily here. Um, Tennessee has one of the lowest voter registration rates in the country, according to Pew's Election Performance Index. Soon, however, it could get a lot harder to help people to register there to vote, according to CNN. Tennessee is currently 45th among the 50 states for its voter registration rate. And yet Republicans in the state now want to make it even worse, apparently. A bill currently making its way through the Tennessee legislature would impose new restrictions on groups that hold voter registration drives, subject them to potential jail time and massive fines. Under one of the provisions, for example, individuals or organizations that uh, submit a certain number of, quote unquote, deficient voter registration applications, forms that are uh, incomplete or contain incorrect information in some fashion, they could be hit with fines from one hundred and fifty to two thousand dollars. Submitting more than 500 deficient forms could result in a fine of up to $10,000. Now, mind you, if a voter registration group gets an application from someone, from anyone, they must turn it in to officials by law, even if... There is something left off of it that would uh, deem it as deficient in some fashion by uh, by officials or if it had incorrect information or if, let's say, I wanted to embarrass a voter registration organization. All I would have to do is get together and submit 500 uh, uh, deficient voter registrations and then that group would be fined up to ten thousand dollars. Forms would have to be delivered or mailed within 10 days of being collected before holding a drive. Organizations uh, uh, registering 100 or more people would have to go through all sorts of steps. They'd have to provide county election officials coordinator with contact information for the people conducting the drive, notify the coordinator about where the drive will be held. They have to complete voter registration training through a coordinator, file a sworn statement abiding by all voter registration laws. In other words, they're trying to make it as absolutely difficult as possible. And uh, they will, uh, if you violate this, you can be guilty of a class A misdemeanor, which is the most serious misdemeanor and is uh, punishable by up to 11 months and 29 days in jail. These new requirements are not meant to solve problems uh, with fraud or something in Texas. They are meant to make it harder to vote, period, particularly for a certain group of voters where voter registration drives have long been used to empower communities that are historically disenfranchised, including students, immigrants, people of color and seniors that, according to. Uh, Hetty Weinberg, the executive director of the ACLU in Tennessee. This legislation, she said, would inhibit access to the ballot and undermine civic engagement. Tequila Johnson, uh, an activist with the Tennessee Black Voter Project, says the bill is a direct attack on the work done by that group. She served as statewide manager for the group in the last election. The project was a coordinated effort across several organizations, and they turned in some 90,000 voter registration applications last year. She said this project highlighted some really, really big topics here in the state and brought a lot of people together across party line, across race lines. And I personally think that this is a threat for what our state stands for right now. And of course, she's right. Tennessee is one of many states where the GOP is working to make it more difficult for voters to vote in 2020. So what did Tennessee? Well, the same thing that Arkansas, sort of, uh, where it's not just who gets to vote, but what they get to vote on, which is now under fire by Republicans who control the state legislature there. Angry that voters passed a ballot initiative to increase the minimum wage in 2018, Arkansas Republicans are now using their legislative majorities to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot in 2020 that would make it vastly harder for progressives, but not for so-called conservatives, to ever put a measure on the ballot again, according to Stephen Wolf over at Daily Coast Elections. Uh, Currently, to put a measure on the ballot in Arkansas, organizers must gather a number of voter signatures that are equal to a certain percentage of the uh, vote cast in the most recent uh, gubernatorial election. They must also collect more than half of that percentage in at least 15 of Arkansas's 75 counties. But this new bill would change it so that they uh, they must get a majority in 45 of Arkansas's 75 counties. Given that Democrats and black voters are heavily concentrated in just a few highly populated counties, this would make it virtually impossible for progressives to get a ballot measure on the ballot ever again. But right wing right wingers won't have any such problem. Uh, it would also uh, restrict the uh the uh, the ballot initiative uh, pro- uh, process in other ways as well taken together these provisions could prove prohibitive he says for progressive ballot measures but not for conservative ones arkansas isn't the only state where republicans are retaliating against the voters for passing progressive ballot measures in 2018 Republicans, he notes, in Florida, Idaho, Michigan, Missouri and Utah have all passed or attempted to pass legislation restricting the initiative process following progressive victories at the ballot box last year. Well, we we cover a lot of stories just like this on this program and at Bradblog.com over the past 15 plus years. At the same time, however, there are a lot of folks, often just regular old citizens who have as Mayor Pete described in that uh, segment we played, who have been compelled to act to counter these forces. We often discuss efforts to make registration and voting more accessible and overseeable with federal legislation. But uh, that's been mired uh, in politics in D.C. for years. It shows no sign of getting traction with Republican control of the U.S. Senate right now. Um, uh, but it's something we talk about a lot, especially as jurisdictions like Georgia, uh, counties in Ohio, and yes, right here in my home county of Los Angeles, uh, are all making it harder for citizens to oversee our elections uh, because they're they're moving to new technology, which yes uh, will make every voter. Vote on a touchscreen, an unverifiable touchscreen voting system. Now, the bill that republican I'm sorry, that uh, Democrats in the House have already passed, H.R. 1, among the things that does, it allows everyone in the country to vote on a hand-marked paper ballot. But the country is moving the other way in many cases. And yet, with all of that, at the same time, there's a lot of citizens across the country who themselves are working to counter these forces on the state and local level and having some success at not only holding off the vote suppressors, but even expanding the franchise. As we saw last November in Florida, where a citizen-led initiative resulted in access to registration and voting rights for more than one and a half million former felons in Florida— Twenty percent of the state's African-American population will now have the right to vote unless Republicans undermine it, and they are trying to do so. Those folks had been denied their voting rights for life, even after completing all of their sentence. Well, uh, it was citizens who actually took the initiative to change that in Florida successfully. So with all the dark news that we cover about voting and on another dark day here uh, overall, I'm afraid, I thought it might be nice to offer a bit of hope. A bit of encouragement here, courtesy of my guest, Professor Joshua A. Douglas. He teaches and researches election law, voting rights and constitutional law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. He's joined us on the program before, as both he and I have been blocked on Twitter unconstitutionally, I should add, by the Alabama Secretary of State, uh, John Merrill, for uh, both both he and I politely asking questions of the Secretary of State. That got us blocked. Professor Douglas has uh, written for many of the top legal journals in the nation and a whole bunch of media outlets, but now his brand-new book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, has just been published, and not a moment too soon, uh, just last week, as a matter of fact, detailing how citizens around the country are helping to expand the franchise and how you can do the same, yes, in your hometown. Professor Josh Douglas, welcome back to the broadcast, sir.
3: Thank you for having me, Brad. Great to be
1: here. Uh, Great to have you. Sorry uh, that I had to delay you there with so much breaking news. I appreciate you understanding. Uh, I I don't actually agree, I should note, with everything that many of the activists you cite in your book are doing to expand the franchise, but frankly... That's what I love about democracy. You and I talked a little bit about that over the weekend. It should be a contest for the best ideas. But the free market of democracy, if you'll allow that metaphor, metaphor has really been corrupted throughout not just the history of our country, Josh, but seemingly more and more over recent years. Is that a fair assessment as you see it? Well, I think that's a partial assessment,
3: Brad. And And, you know, what I like to focus on, in addition to the kind of doom and gloom that seems to invade our psyche with respect to the right to vote, Mm -hmm. are the positive stories of, of progress and of success. Uh, as you know you, know, you know, you and I don't necessarily agree in every proposal, but I, I hope that we can all agree that there's power in these inspiring stories mm-hmm. that I tell in the book about ways to make our voting process more convenient and, and more inclusive. And so, you know, we can quibble about some of the details, but hopefully the overarching message that we need to take back our elections through local grassroots work can really take hold.
1: Yeah, and I agree with you. And I think the book does provide a great deal of hope and encouragement along those lines so since we're short on time today what give us an example of some of these success stories that you highlight in your book vote for us that might inspire some of the folks listening today because a lot of these you know uh there's a lot of groups out there uh taking on these efforts but in many cases it's just single individuals who step up and uh either start their own group or start their own initiative
3: yeah let me highlight two very quickly sure. for you. The first is the comes from the prologue and it comes from my home state of Kentucky, which has one of the worst felon disenfranchisement laws in the country. Felons are disenfranchised for life. Mm-hmm. And yet this amazing individual named West Powell decided to speak up. Uh, he had been convicted of a felony after stealing a car radio from an auto salvage yard when he was 18. Mm-hmm. And he went to the Kentucky legislature to testify on an expungement bill and told his story. He was 45 years old at the time, and he said, you know, Look, I made a dumb mistake, and I think I paid for that four times over. What more should I do? And the Kentucky legislature had always denied this uh, bill to move forward. But that day, a Republican state senator, Whitney Westerfield, was listening, and something clicked for him, and, and he changed his mind on the spot. And the, the Kentucky legislature passed this bill to allow some low-level level, low level felons to regain their right to vote. Mm-hmm. And West Powell got his right to vote back, and guess what? He hasn't missed an election since. Nice. And it was all because he just decided to speak up an everyday individual. The second story I'll write quickly is – uh, from Michigan, where a young woman named Katie Fahey, she mm-hmm. worked for the Michigan Recycling Coalition, uh, posted on Facebook after the 2016 election saying, I'm kind of thinking of taking on redistricting in Michigan. Anyone mm-hmm. want to help? <laughs> and actually, not a lot of people directly responded, but a whole bunch of people started to share that Facebook post, first tens, then hundreds, then thousands. And it created a whole new organization called Voters Not Politicians, where they then went and canvassed to get signatures, hundreds of thousands of signatures, and eventually got an initiative on the ballot this past um this past november to create an independent redistricting commission and that passed overwhelmingly and so now the people took back the power to draw the lines from the entrenched politicians again these are everyday americans who just decide to speak up
1: and you know i hear from people all the time who say well what can we do i hear your st- you know these these terrible stories you you write about at bradblog.com or you hear about it on the broadcast uh, and it, it seems like uh you know they feel so hopeless because boy uh things are really bad uh you know on a day that the uh, the eiffel tower no the uh, notre dame has burnt down it, it can be discouraging seeing everything that is going on around us and the stories that i read about how uh, arkansas is now making it harder to get these initiatives on the ballot but I, you know, I have found over the years that it is not the necessarily the big groups that step in and make a difference. It is the stories like the ones that you tell that end up making the that, that, that end up making the real difference. So when people are saying, you know, this is not going to get any better, things are getting worse. Uh, we sort of have ourselves to blame, I think, don't we, for not taking action, not actually doing something about this?
3: Yeah, I think the doom and gloom can overwhelm us to the Mm -hmm. point where we don't act and we sort of throw up our hands and say... You know, we can't fix this or we can't do anything. And so that's really one of the main points of the book is to demonstrate these amazing individuals who are just everyday Americans. And mm-hmm. yet I call them democracy champions because they've decided to do something in their local communities. But the other thing I hope people take away from the book, in addition to the inspiring stories, is a call to action. And so what I did was I provided an appendix mm-hmm. that has a list of organizations in all 50 states, as well as some national organizations. So no matter where you are, if you read this book and you get to the end, and hopefully you feel inspired the same way I was when I interviewed these people, to take action, you can flip back to the back of the book and find your state and find three or four organizations to mm-hmm. call and, and get involved.
1: Yeah, and I really appreciate that uh, because I have people asking me all the time, what can I do? Well, one thing you could do now is you could buy uh, Josh Douglas's book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, and jump into one of these uh, many ongoing efforts, and they may inspire you to... Uh, you know, see something that's going on in another state, and do it in your state uh, as well. Josh, uh, we we talked uh, quite a bit last week on this program. Uh, since you brought up uh, uh, re-enfranchising uh, former felons, we talked a lot a bit last week on this program on several different days about the idea of voting not just for former felons, but for the incarcerated, not just ex felons, but those actually still in jail. Where I have argued that. Those folks are, are some of the most affected by our laws and the elected officials who make them and carry them out. Uh, sh- should they, as you see it, be allowed to vote? Uh, and, and do you see any effort there to make that somehow a reality or to begin moving in that direction? Yeah, I
3: do think they should be allowed to vote. You know, felon disenfranchisement is a legacy that really is rooted in, in racism and, and Jim Crow laws. Uh, two states do allow current prisoners to vote, Maine and Vermont, mm-hmm. and you don't see democracy breaking down in those <laughs> places. And I do think there's a movement we see... Well, I
1: don't know. They did elect Paul LePage uh, twice in a row, Josh, so that well, might kill your argument about democracy. And But go ahead. Okay. Uh,
3: well, but, you know, there's some other forces that go there. Now Maine has adopted ranked-choice voting, uh, which I know you and I have debated a little bit, right. but I think that will at least avoid that kind of result, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but But in any event, I do think there's a movement And and you see some of the presidential candidates Mm -hmm. talking about this, uh, about how prisoners should be allowed to vote as well. Um, And more broadly, to talk about sort of voting rights in general, I think it's really important to see some of the presidential candidates focusing on democracy issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Mayor Pete before I went on today. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the three pillars of his campaign, based on his launch speech yesterday, is democracy reform. Yep. Um, and so I think it's really important part to be part of the discussion. Again, we can quibble about different details, but this has to be the number one thing that we talk about, or at least among the top things we talk about, ways to make our voting process fairer, more inclusive, more convenient... And, you know, as I like to say, it should be the best ideas and the best candidates to win that win, and not the election rules.
1: And I think it's just so important, the points you're making here, because there is so many forces out there trying to take away the franchise, trying to restrict. And you underscore that there really are a lot of ways that uh, the right to vote has been expanded in years, automatic uh, voter registration in a number of states. Uh, You even talk about lowering the voting age to 16. Are you sure that's a good idea? And what would need to be done to accomplish that, Josh?
3: I am, and you know why I know it's a good idea? Why? It happened already in a few places. So it's the first place to do it uh, for local elections was Tacoma Park, Maryland, and that was because of the advocacy of some local people, some innovative council member and some youth who went to the Board of uh, Education to talk about improved civics education in conjunction with lowering the voting age. 16- um, to 17-year-olds in Tacoma Park vote about twice the rate of 18- to 24-year-olds mm-hmm. there. Uh, so we're talking about local elections, and I think this does have to be a local push, and so we can see it moving to other places. San Francisco almost passed lowering the voting age uh, in 2016, and they're likely to try to do so again, and I think it'll be successful. Uh, some other California cities have also looked into it. You know, one of the biggest predictors of whether someone's going to vote is whether they voted previously. Yeah. Voting is habit-forming, mm. and so is non-voting. If you skip the first election when you're eligible, you're much less likely to become a habitual voter. So why not... Capture these individuals when they're cognitively capable of doing so, and I've looked into studies of cognitive brain science and brain development, and they're cognitively capable of doing so at eighteen. Excuse me, at sixteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, eighteen is sort of a, a historical relic or, or mistake in some ways, or a coincidence. And let's capture these people and, and educate them better, and the civics education important part has to go along with this and then hopefully create a whole new generation of engaged voters.
1: You know, based on what we saw after, for example, the Parkland shooting, uh, those folks, those kids down in Florida who were many of them, 16, 17, yes, they knew a hell of a lot more about what's going on in this country, uh, the dangers that we face, the way to deal with them, you know, than, well, frankly, than our uh, President of the United States, who's been a Fox News fan for so many years. Uh, Josh Douglas, before I let you go, you're going to be out here in Los Angeles, I think, in the Next few weeks, giving a talk on the book, I believe, uh, June 20 at the last bookstore in downtown L.A. on Springs, uh, Spring Street. Am I right about that? That's
3: right. Um, and yet, to uh, make sure this goes on, people should uh, would be best to purchase tickets ahead of time. A ticket just gives you a copy of the book, but this uh, ensures for the bookstore that there'll be enough people there.
1: Uh, and where can folks uh, get that? Do they go to the bookstore or your website at JoshuaADouglas.com?
3: Uh, There's a link on my website, joshuaadouglas.com, under Book Tour. You can also go to the Last Bookstore website and find the information there. Um, And again, it's just a pre-order of a book, Mm -hmm. uh, but that will ensure for the bookstore that that they'll have a good crowd for my talk on June 20th.
1: Excellent. I hope folks uh, turn out. Uh, Tell Josh hello if I'm not there as well. You should also follow Josh on Twitter. I promise—well, I don't want to promise, but he probably won't block you, unlike the Alabama Secretary of State, if you follow him on Twitter at Joshua. A. Douglas. Hey, thank you, brother. Really appreciate you joining us today. I look forward to doing it again soon in the future, my friend.
3: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: You bet. That's Joshua A. Douglas. His book is Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Uh, if you're looking for some light in the ongoing darkness, uh, you'll find quite a bit there. Uh, so, my thanks to Josh. All right, quick break, and we are back with, oh man, a ridiculously short segment. Uh, maybe we'll fit in a phone call. 818 985 5735 is our phone number. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com running ridiculously late. We will post uh, a link to Josh's book and to that um, where you can buy tickets to his uh, event here in Los Angeles coming up in Ju- on uh, June twenty. My thanks once again to him. Uh, and well, I'd hope to hit some of the stories that we're going to cover on tomorrow's broadcast and tomorrow's Green News Report, Desi Doyen, because we had a lot of news along those lines, both good and bad, over the weekend. But we'll you'll I have to wait to catch up. (laughs) Uh, That's all I can say.
0: I know. It's been too busy today. Yeah,
1: Tune in tomorrow. All right, let me take one quick call from the always reliable Mo in Long Beach. Oh, Morris, welcome to the broadcast, sir. What is on your mind, my friend? Brad, you
2: know what the Bible and Donald Trump's taxes have in common? No, I don't. They both tell it all. Uh, The bigot-in-chief who governs by tweet is feeling the heat of the tax man who we. Have a good one, Brad.
1: Well done, Morris. I appreciate that. Uh, that would be our, that would be our second bad riddle on today's broadcast. Uh, thank you, Morris. I gra- I greatly appreciate that. Uh, and just to give you a teaser, by the way, since we we're going to cover it, but we don't have time now. But just a teaser: Washington State. Uh, and its governor, Jay Inslee, who, who is also running for president. Is running for
0: president in 2020, indeed. Yes, uh, the Washington state. They have passed uh, a pretty remarkable target to get renewable energy for all of their electricity.
1: 100 percent by, I think it's 2045 uh, and But the point is, Washington state already gets 75 percent of its electricity from renewables. Yes. This is not difficult. This is not that hard as the right wingers would have you believe because they're trying to protect the fossil fuel industry, even as at all costs, even as we saw another wave of extreme Climate change-fueled weather over the weekend that killed, was it, eight or nine people at this right point? Right now,
0: yes, it's about nine people so far as we go to airtime from the swarm of tornadoes that swept across the country um, yeah, over the weekend.
1: That story will continue on the next Bradcast. Desi Doyen, our producer, will be there. And I hope you will as well. My thanks today to our board operator, D'Angelo Jones. Of course, to my guest, Josh Douglas of the University of Kentucky. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Until, uh, oh yeah, you can drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.